Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another podcast episode. Today, I'm joined by Jake Whitman, the Senior Director of Product Marketing at SoFi and formerly a Group Marketing Manager at Intuit and Brand Manager with P&G. He's also the author of Destination, Teach for America, which hit number one on Amazon under education leadership within the first month. And now Jake is the founder and managing partner at Ludlow Capital, an investment search firm. Jake, it's a pleasure to have you on today. I love the name and I'm really thrilled for this podcast episode. Great name. Thanks Thanks uh, for having me on. So, so my first thing is you've been in the marketing game with some, some really large brands and you've also been in the past on the entrepreneurial side, but now diving more headfirst into the entrepreneurial side than ever. So before talking about where that leads, I'd love to get a sense of how that entrepreneurial DNA, which I'm sure has always been there, how that's really helped propel your marketing career. Yeah, it, it's a great question. Um, I think, you know, before I was in the, in the marketing world at, at Procter & Gamble, I started a nonprofit and then I wrote a book, self-published it and started a publishing company to do that. So I've had that entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial DNA uh, in my blood for a long time. I think, you know, one of the, the mantras that I've always lived by is I've never been scared of getting fired from a job. Um, and, and I think, you know, what that, what that enables you to do is to take risks, challenge conventions, challenge the status quo, um, speak, speak up, have an opinion in the workplace, have an opinion in the work that you're doing and, and really kind of put your voice out there. Um, and you know, there are times you're going to disagree with the people around you. There are times that you're going to, um, you know, that, that you may be disagreeing with a boss or a superior or something like that. But if you have a consistent voice, I really believe that that helps you, um, continue to do great work, which ultimately helps to propel your career. Um, I, I, you know, a lot of people in, in, Corporations um, also have that mentality. You also find people who don't and, and you know, want to sort of please the people around them. Um, and I've just found that, you know, I, I can't operate that way in the workplace. I love having passion about the work that I'm doing. And I think that that um, aligns itself well with the entrepreneurial work I did early in my career. Yeah, something I always mention to our early team members, because a lot of times this is one of their first real corporate-esque jobs. Granted, we are a tiny startup in the, in the agency realm. Um, is always that we, we need to be pushing for progress and, and advancement and to to never worry about being fired, let go, et cetera, because and, and this is something that we kind of have set up internally where, you know, it's one of those things where you are not going to be blindsided if you're let go. Like you're going to know way too long because we keep way too long of a leash sometimes. And, you know, that's something that hurts our business. But ultimately, it's beneficial for the team members, giving them the comfort uh, so, so yeah, I, I love the the insight there, and that's something I always push for our team members. And uh, so, so talking about some of your past experiences, you obviously were with P and G, very CPG physical product oriented brand, and then moved into the tech arena. I'd love to get a sense from you what what does it look like because uh, the differences between marketing, branding, and so on w- within those realms. Because I think we can sometimes approach it as well. It's just a consumer product. It's ultimately the same thing, but. I know there's a lot of nuances that are different. So, fr- from your experience, what were those differences like? Yeah, it, it's a great question, um, and I, you know, I get this question a lot from former colleagues in the CPG world who are who are thinking about moving into the tech industry. Um, here, here's kind of how I break it down: CPG is like very much grounded and 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 amazing at brand building. You are you are there to build a brand and and often the brand is what's driven growth into the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. 
you know, as you think about CPG grant brand building and CPG marketing, you're 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 really starting like getting to know your audience incredibly deeply, talking to lots of people, doing really in-depth research, you know, then taking that and saying, okay, let's let's develop a really like clear product roadmap um, that helps solve those problems and build marketing campaigns to tell the story about how you're going to solve those problems. And then you use really big marketing budgets to tell the world that story because typically CPG brands are really kind of mass products. So if you're selling laundry detergent, you know, you're not looking at a, a corner of the market, you're looking at you know, essentially the entire and the entire country with some sort of nuance. And so, um, you know, you're really trying to reach, reach people with those deep, deep human insights and those, those kind of deep insights. The problem is it takes you like 18 months to launch a product, right? Like it to, to, from ideation to do all the prototyping and get all the way through, um, you know, it takes a really, really long time and you don't even have, even once you start selling, you don't even have clear data because you're typically selling through a retailer. And so you're getting weekly sales data at a pretty high level as opposed to kind of the minute by minute, hour by hour data that you might get in tech. And so that's why it's like it's so critical spending so much time up front developing that strong strategy because you've dedicated two years of resources and energy and time in the CPG space. Tech is sort of flipped, right? Like tech is at its core grounded in data. Mm-hmm. And the value is really in you have the ability to kind of iterate and learn as you go. You can put something out today and learn tomorrow, right? And so sort of by nature, you're entering the market with incomplete information and a group of hypotheses that you're trying to kind of figure out, is this the right, is this the right thing? And so it's much more kind of tactical day to day, you know, putting 10 different product features in the market and 100 value props out in the market, testing with different audiences, testing with different benefits, and really trying to figure out what is like, what is the value prop and the feature set that is solving the needs of, of the audience. And you learn through behavior, you learn what are they doing as they're using the product as they're going through your website, you're looking at flows, you're looking at drop off um, as they're moving through your product set. And so, you know, you can do all of this in days and pivot quickly. And so you actually don't have to set the you know, months and months and months of strategy ahead of time, you can go to market immediately. You know, the risk on this side, I think is driving efficiency to death right? So you actually aren't creating a voice in the market. You're actually just sort of, you can, you can, you can perfect the return on the next dollar, but you're never actually establishing a clear point of view in the market so that your brand can grow in the hearts and minds of people um, over time. You know, I think both of these are important at different stages and, and um, you know, both of these kind of anchor in, in understanding your audience incredibly well. They're just sort of different ways, different ways of doing it and different ways of learning. Yeah, like all things, the best answer is somewhere in between, leveraging both. Um, and we, we've certainly seen the old adage of, you know, you invest X into marketing and 50% is working and the other 50% isn't, but you don't know which 50 is which, you know, more of the old school brand building mentality. And then the, the textile where it's a little bit more, uh, more data driven, you almost get paralysis by analysis, uh, where you get to the point where everything is systematized, you're not actually building brand. So so like all things, it, it's likely the, the marriage in between that that's going to work best. Um, and I think totally that's agree. Yeah. yeah and the, the other, the other, the other thing I'd say with that is like, there's always this debate of brand and performance marketing. And like my fundamental belief there is that these things are on a spectrum and like yeah. no, no dollar you spend shouldn't be driving sales down the line. If you're putting a big marketing campaign out there and you don't, and it's not driving sales, it's a failure. 
And if you're, you know, but I also believe that if you're putting performance marketing out there, if you're putting really like kind of transactional performance, direct response marketing out there, and you're not building your, and you're not using that to build your brand, the hearts and minds of people, I actually think that that's a failure as well, because you're just chasing a dollar and you're not, you're not actually able to sustain long, long-term growth. And so I think of these things as a spectrum, both have to solve both. The primary KPI just might be a little bit different depending on what the, what the tactic is. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think, uh, I think that's something that, that we're, we're improving in the marketing realm, but it's always going to be a back and forth. Um, you know, on our team in particular, like we have our e-com at paid media, we're the data geeks. And then we have our, our creatives, which are abstract, kind of insane sometimes. And I just love the debates between the two about like why we need to create the ad spot like this. Uh, Cause it's very, it's, you know, it's totally numbers oriented and then totally just the feel and the look and the, what do you, the emotion you get from it. And, and kind of on that note too, is the difference between finance and marketing and something that I've experienced at a personal level, my dad, financial advisor. So I did the exact opposite. I went entrepreneurial in marketing, which is like, not the safe route at all. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of my friends in, in, in college level and now outside of it in the finance arena, what I always find so interesting is our outlook on the market, on companies, et cetera, and how we look at things so differently. Um, I even got into an argument uh, with someone recently, like literally on Instagram DM, who, who finance background, who was telling me why Tesla's dumb for promoting uh, their tequila and something of that nature. And I was like, that makes like, it's just a brand building play, but I don't see the numbers. I don't see the finance. So from your perspective, heading into this new kind of investment firm realm with a marketing background, what's kind of your thesis or, or vision uh, heading into it and in, in which is a kind of an arena that is typically just so finance oriented. I'd love to get a sense of, of what that vision looks like. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, for the, to go to the first part of, of, of your question for a minute. I, you know, I think the best marketers do know the business as well. And I think like full stop, it is very important for a marketer and especially a marketer that's in house. Um, but I think also because the agency side, you know, you don't have access to the, to the financials, but a a marketer that's in house at a company, I think, um, it is critically important for them to know the business because at the end of the day, like the best investment is where your where your dollar goes the furthest, right? And yeah. so, if you're going to invest in a marketing campaign, you better know how it drives the business. That's it's critically important to doing that. Um, so, you know, I think that that should just as a response to your first part of your question. So, so yeah, so um, I am in the process, and well, in the, I have launched now uh, a search fund called Ludlow Capital um, in a search to go acquire acquire a business. Um, I'm leaving, leaving SoFi soon uh, to kind of focus on this full time. I've been kind of building the backbones of it for the last for the last few months. Um, my thesis is very much in the consumer facing space, which is where I do differ a little bit from uh, from a lot of of search of what we call searchers out there. Um, a lot of a lot of the search space is focused on kind of B two B services, slow but steady growth, high barriers to entry, things like. You know the the company that tests fire hoses for a municipality or something like that that maybe grows five percent year over year. Um, my focus is a little bit more in the growth space. I want to find um, consumer facing businesses that uh, that have very kind of clear growth opportunities to up to ten x the business. So you know whether or not I buy a five million dollar business and can scale it to a fifty million dollar business is you know. Once you have the keys to the castle and you start to run it, that's that's how you go do that. But I at least want to have line of sight to the business that there's the opportunity 
um, to do that. And so I'm, I'm really looking at all different kinds of consumer facing businesses. I'm looking at, um, you know, traditional CPG e-commerce businesses that have already kind of shown some, some kind of rapid growth, but, the, but need a little bit more kind of, um, marketing muscle behind it. I'm looking at, um, B2C SaaS businesses. I've spent the last few years in the tech and understand the SaaS, the SaaS world, uh, well, um, food and beverage and retail, could potentially be a space as well. Obviously, you know, you have to be a little bit careful with COVID because it's so everything is so unknown right now, but um, there's some really great businesses that have been able to sustain through the pandemic um, and could be a great, a great opportunity to come in and, and kind of grow coming out of it. So very wide range from a, from an industry standpoint, other than consumer facing um, with kind of clear identifiable growth opportunities. Definitely. And I'm really eager to see uh, how, how that turns out and, and what business that ends up being. And it'll be really cool to see you kind of, kind of Me running, too. Yeah, yeah <laughs> running the show there. And so, so something in your LinkedIn bio that, that definitely caught my eye was your passion for developing strategies that challenge the status quo. And I know for our audience here, that definitely is resonates with them. Something we always push is being trendsetters, doing the things uh, that, that others simply won't see or won't catch on to. Um, that are ultimately going to, you know, set that trend or whatever cliche I can throw in there. But I, I guess when you're working with larger firms, how do you best balance that? I, I mean, earlier you talked about how you never kind of have that, that that entrepreneurial DNA makes it so you, you don't have that fear of being fired or something of that nature. But but how do you really push the envelope and 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 push the needle forward at larger firms to in fact challenge the status quo? I think it does. It goes back to you know not being scared of having a voice like I, I really do believe that a lot of a lot of the kind of big company corporate marketers that get that get stuck it's because the culture may not support them having a voice and thinking about different um maybe not having a voice but like the culture doesn't support thinking about things differently and and, and challenging the status quo i'll give you an example of one that that uh, i think illustrates it, it pretty well is um we, when I worked on old, I worked on old spice marketing for, for a long time. And obviously old spice is full of kind of irreverent, uh, market, like it is known for its irreverent marketing, especially over the past 10 years or so. Um, and does have kind of mentality of, of doing things differently. But I think at its core, it's still a PNG brand and it's still a brand that, you know, we're scrutinizing the day to day return on investment all the time. When I was working there in the early um, in the early 2010s, <clears throat> there was um, you know the, this this relatively upstart company called Twitch that was uh, that was you know starting to gain traction in the market. They had sold to Amazon pretty recently. Obviously, now Twitch is a, is is a huge business and probably very well known to your to your audience. And they had the year a year before had done something called uh, called Pokemon. Uh, what was it called? The internet plays Pokemon, I think is what it was actually called. Basically, it was a crowdsourced game to see how fast the internet could beat, could beat Pokemon. Um, and we had the idea of partnering with Twitch to do our own kind of live action, first ever live action game um, streamed on Twitch where the internet controlled a live human being through, uh, through the woods and wow. through, like, through a gameplay experience. And so uh, we set up this huge operation out in the woods. We decked out like 25 acres with wireless capabilities. We uh, hired all kinds of actors. We built props through the woods, and then we let the internet go to work. And we said, 
what do you want them to do now? Mace, the internet would say, okay, go walk over that tree and pull the piece of pizza that's hanging down from the tree and eat it. Right. Like we let the internet control, control him for three days. And, you know, ultimately we saw a huge return from it. We were, we were promoting a new, a new collection called the, the fresher collection, which was very much inspired by kind of the products of nature. Um, we called this the nature adventure and I can't, it's been a long time, but we had, you know, millions and millions of views over, over a three year period. Um, and ultimately grew, you know, grew that product line pretty dramatically coming out of it. But it was the type of thing that, I mean, other than the internet controls Pokemon, nobody had really thought about before it, what Twitch was not and gaming was not nearly the doesn't, didn't have like sort of the zeitgeist role in society that it does now. Um, and we just pushed for it. We said, this is, this is an exciting thing to do. Our audience is going to love it. Let's, let's go for it and let's measure the results and see how it performs. Yeah. That's incredible. And I love the fact that that's taking place on Twitch, which now the year is 2020, it is a lot more commonly commonplace known. It comes up in conversation, but even now I have a difficulty pushing Twitch advertising and influencers through Twitch, like to, to clientele. And I couldn't, I could only imagine what that looks like 10 years ago when, when our notion of gaming, uh, which is still, we're overcoming some things, but our notion of gaming was like, Oh, these are just losers in their parents' basement, not this, massive cultural movement that is so much larger now so yeah i, I can certainly uh can certainly appreciate your your i guess cur- courageousness um, in that arena so yeah it's uh, i think it's about finding you know it's about finding trends seeing the opportunity again like deeply knowing your audience we talked about that earlier in the podcast we knew that gaming significantly over indexed with old spice users and we mm-hmm. we also knew that we really had to get it right because gamers are a very opinionated group. And so we didn't, we couldn't just do a logo slab. We couldn't just do something that, um, that fell inauthentic to the, to the audience and to the group. We had to do something that very much was part of, you know, something that, that, that the gaming world knew. And we wanted to be, we wanted to come to them, right? We wanted to be part of their community. We didn't want to ask them to come to us. And, and so we tapped into this somewhat, you know, Twitch at the time was a, was definitely a known a known entity and yeah. very known amongst gamers but um we tapped into this kind of world that uh that the people were talking about with the whole pokemon um the internet controls pokemon game from the year before and, and really tried to kind of go to where the audience was i love that because i think about 2010 and i'm like okay where, where am i in that i'm 11 years old so i'm purchasing old spice because i thought that was classier than wearing axe uh and and I and based on the commercials and things of that nature, and I'm all about gaming and things of that nature. So it's just it's just funny to think about. But yeah, I mean, that was literally I was your direct target market during that time period that they're going after. And I'm like, oh, that yeah, that totally resonates with with your end consumer there. Um, now, now that was something that was very much like crystal ball s that that played out incredibly well. So I'd love to get a sense from you, which I know you have your head down uh, in, in the search right now, and. Um, you know, you're probably not always thinking about what's next, but I, I'd love to get a sense from you. Is there anything really piquing your interest? Is it the gaming arena? Is it, you know, D to C right now and anything we're seeing there? Um, is there any clear kind of vision from you or anything interesting on, on the horizon where you're like, oh, this is, this is going to happen. And I'm really curious to see what happens and shakes out here. Anything come to mind there? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you have to look at the clip, like the elephant in the room of COVID, to kind of answer that question and, and and try and pick out, you know, what are what are 
the massive societal implications that are going to come that are going to come out come as society kind of emerges from COVID. What's going to stick around? What's going to go back mm-hmm. um, back to what it was? And so, you know, I don't claim to have a, a crystal ball at all. I think you know there are there are certain industries that are um, having you know huge disruption. I think education, and I I've, before any of it, I was a te- I was a teacher with Teach for America, and so I have some background and, and a lot of passion around in, in the education space. Um, I think education uh, is going to be dramatically changed, and finding ways to, you know, better engage pe- better engage kids to 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 um, to teach them in a way that they can is more personalized, is more sort of um, uh, what's the word is yeah more personalized, more kind of focused on what their needs are at the time, and meet and again meeting them where they are. Um, I think is an industry that's going to change quite dramatically. And I actually think other, you know, businesses and other categories can play a role in that, right? Like education doesn't just have to be, you know, sitting down and taking your algebra two class in high school. It, it's really learning, you know, learning about personal financial management. It's learning about, um, it's, it's, you know, learning about current events. It's, there's all kinds of things that can, that can be considered education. And I think COVID in particular, particular is positioned to kind of disrupt the way people think about education because students are learning at home now they're sitting at home all day and not that I think that that'll continue but um, I I do think that we're going to get back to schools quickly but the way we think about better engaging our students I, I, I think is right for disruption right now yeah I couldn't agree more and as someone who's certainly uh, interested in that arena and and I guess seeing that firsthand with with friends and fellow like former classmates of, of mine, like I, I totally see the, the potential disruption there. I only wish it happened a little bit sooner, but granted, at least it's it's taking place because sometimes in some arenas, we're a little bit slower to adapt. And I think education is one of those that is so impactful. And like you said, I think it's something that companies can be, companies and institutions uh, or corporations that is, can be playing a larger role, whether that's uh, accreditation programs. And we've seen some of the biggest brands in the world, like, like a Google, Apple, um, so on play in that arena, but yeah. you know, it's easy for them to do when, when you have those profit margins and when you can dedicate a team towards it and it, boom, and it's just maybe just on the developer side, I'm, I'm really curious to see how that plays out in arenas like marketing or in sales or in business development, finance, like you said. So yeah, that's certainly an arena I'm, I'm wildly interested in as well. So my final thing that I have in terms of a question for you, um, would, would be kind of educating our audience on the why, the why of doing and diving into what you're going to be diving into. Um, Cause I think it's a foreign subject for a lot of our listeners here. Um, and even for myself. So I I'd love to learn a little bit more about that and hear kind of the, the why behind. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people think of work as sort of a binary thing. You either go work for a company or you go start, start a business, right? You do it, you do a startup. Um, you know, at its core, I actually think in this whole space is called it's sort of the monarch is kind of like entrepreneurship through acquisition. I think of entrepreneurship through acquisition really as like a shortcut to owning your own business. And so founders are glorified in the world today. Founders, I would argue, are sort of our modern day celebrity in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. But like starting a business and growing it to a level that makes you comfortable financially, even comfortable financially, or, you know, what most people are looking for are extraordinarily wealthy. (laughs) Uh, That's a really, really, really hard thing to do. Um, And so like, what if you can de-risk the initial part 
of a, of a startup and buy a business that already has thousands of customers and is making hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in profit, right? Um, and so, you know, it's, it's this interesting space of, you know, people and your listeners who may not want to climb the corporate ladder, but are nervous about the risk of a startup. Um, it's something to at least kind of think about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is a reality though, that like, it's hard to buy a company for $5 million and turn it into a unicorn. And that's not really what the goal of this is. I like no searcher. I mean, people can, can hope for, but like no searchers typically are not looking for, um, you know, taking a $5 million acquisition and, and creating a billion dollar company. But if you own 50% of a $10 million business, and after you've paid off all of your debt, and the initial investments from your equity investors are paid off, you sell it for $10 million, you're going to walk home with $5 million in your pocket, right? And so, you know, that's a that's a fantastic return. I mean, there is not, that's a very difficult thing to, to get to in your career is to earn a, earn a $5 million payday. Um, and you know, it's also unlikely that you're going to spend years of your life working on something and end up without kind of a tangible asset because a business that's sustainable and is growing with profits, um, as long as you're diligent and identifying the company and you're kind of doing the background work to find a company that isn't going to go under, you're, you're unlikely to end up in a place where you're, the whole company is at a $0 revenue, $0 profit. And so it is a de-risked way to go into entrepreneurship. Um, it's a relatively niche space right now, but um, there's, there are lots of resources out there for people who are interested in learning learning more about the space. Yeah, and are, are there any resources in particular that you would refer? Because I know uh, something that, that I've always thought about with our team here too, and kind of the vision for like, you know, as we grow and people then venture off and do their own things, I'm always like, there's so many local SMBs um, and, and companies we come across that maybe they aren't a good fit for the Gen Z arena, but I'm always like, you know what? like you know, the CEO is, he or she is 58 years old and they're going to want to try her here. And I, I get a look, I get a look at behind the scenes. And I'm like, damn, if I was running this thing, we'd be doing three, five X your profit within a year. And then I would do this and da, 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 from my marketing perspective, of course. But uh, yeah, I mean, are there any resources that, that you'd recommend uh, for, for our listeners? Yeah, definitely. And first of all, I would say often a, a target company to buy is exactly that. It's someone who's been running a business for 20 years and is in their mid-60s and is looking to retire. And there's nothing wrong with the business. They just are ready to retire and not have the stress. And they want to earn the uh, the $5 million paycheck I talked about earlier. They yeah. want to pocket that and kind of you know, retire. And so that is, that is often a place where you, where you find, find a business that isn't necessarily in trouble. It's just a great opportunity to kind of come in and be the next, the next generation of leaders at the company. Um, there, there are a lot of them, the the ones, there are three that I would kind of recommend as, as places for people to look. Um, one is Harvard business review has a, um, book called how to buy a small business. And it's sort of the, the gospel for, um, for the search fund world. And so I would definitely, anyone who's really interested can buy it on Amazon. It's like 15 bucks. Um, would definitely recommend that Stanford also has a, like a hundred page primer, um, that is, um, free to download. You can, uh, you can find it if you just search for it. Um, that's a, that's a great read and, and kind of walks you through the full steps. And then there's also a really amazing online community called search funder, um, searchfunder.com. And it's, it's, searchers, investors, bankers, um, you know, former searchers who are now CEOs. Uh, it's a really actually amazing online community. You'd be surprised at how supportive this community is of each other and then trying to help people find great deals. And so 
you know, even just poking around on searchfunder.com would be enough to really kind of get a get a grasp of, of what this industry is all about. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, I'm hoping all of our listeners here will give it a look, dive into a little bit further, at least just to learn. Um, and hopefully some of them attack that and hit me up in 10 years and want to buy trendsetters, which I won't sell, but, but you know, I'll take a free dinner if they're open to it. Uh, but anyway, Jake, it was truly a pleasure having you on today. I can't thank you enough for your time. And thank you for all of our listeners here for tuning in.